Book Two, Chapter One of Ben Hur. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Ben Hur, A Tale of the Christ, by Lou Wallace. Book Two, Chapter One. We begin with a quote. There is a fire and motion of the soul which will not dwell in its own narrow being, but aspire beyond the fitting medium of desire, and, but once kindled, quenchless evermore, preys upon high adventure, nor can tire of aught but rest. By Child Harold It is necessary now to carry the reader forward twenty-one years, to the beginning of the administration of Valerius Gratis, the fourth imperial governor of Judea, a period which will be remembered as rent by political agitations in Jerusalem, if, indeed, it be not the precise time of the opening of the final quarrel between the Jew and the Roman. In the interval Judea had been subjected to changes affecting her in many ways, but in nothing so much as her political status. Herod the Great died within one year after the birth of the child— died so miserably that the Christian world had reason to believe him overtaken by the divine wrath. Like all great rulers who spend their lives in perfecting the power they create, he dreamed of transmitting his throne and crown, of being the founder of a dynasty. With that intent, he left a will dividing his territories between his three sons, Antipas, Philip, and Archelaus, of whom the last was appointed to succeed to the title. The testament was necessarily referred to Augustus, the emperor, who ratified all its provisions with one exception. He withheld from Archelaus the title of king, until he proved his capacity and loyalty. In lieu thereof he created him ethnarch, and as such permitted him to govern nine years, when, for misconduct and inability to stay the turbulent elements that grew and strengthened around him, he was sent into Gaul as an exile. Caesar was not content with deposing Archelaus. He struck the people of Jerusalem in a manner that touched their pride, and keenly wounded the sensibilities of the haughty habitués of the temple. He reduced Judea to a Roman province, and annexed it to the prefecture of Syria. So, instead of a king ruling royally from the palace left by Herod on Mount Zion, the city fell into the hands of an officer of the second grade, an appointee called Procurator, who communicated with the court in Rome through the legate of Syria, residing in Antioch. To make the hurt more painful, the Procurator was not permitted to establish himself in Jerusalem. Caesarea was his seat of government. Most humiliating, however, most exasperating, most studied, Samaria, of all the world the most despised, Samaria was joined to Judea as a part of the same province. What ineffable misery the bigoted separatists or Pharisees endured at finding themselves elbowed and laughed at in the procurator's presence in Caesarea by the devotees of Jerusalem. In this reign of sorrows, one consolation, and one only, remained to the fallen people. The high priest occupied the Herodian palace in the market-place, and kept the semblance of a court there. What his authority really was is a matter of easy estimate. Judgment of life and death was retained by the procurator. 
justice was administered in the name and according to the decreals of Rome. Yet more significant, the royal house was jointly occupied by the imperial excisemen, and all his corps of assistants, registrars, collectors, publicans, informers, and spies. Still, to the dreamers of liberty to come, there was a certain satisfaction in the fact that the chief ruler in the palace was a Jew. His mere presence there, day after day, kept them reminded of the covenants and promises of the prophets, and the ages when Jehovah governed the tribes through the sons of Aaron. It was to them a certain sign that he had not abandoned them. So their hopes lived, and served their patience, and helped them wait grimly the son of Judah, who was to rule Israel. Judea had been a Roman province eighty years and more, ample time for the Caesars to study the idiosyncrasies of the people, time enough at least to learn that the Jew, with all his pride, could be quietly governed if his religion were respected. Proceeding upon that policy, the predecessors of Gratis had carefully abstained from interfering with any of the sacred observances of their subjects. But he chose a different course. Almost his first official act was to expel Hannas from the high priesthood, and give the place to Ishmael, son of Phabus. Whether the act was directed by Augustus, or proceeded from Gratis himself, its impolicy became speedily apparent. The reader shall be spared a chapter on Jewish politics. A few words upon the subject, however, are essential to such as may follow the succeeding narration critically. At this time, leaving origin out of view, there were in Judea the party of the nobles and the separatist or popular party. Upon Herod's death, the two united against Archelaus. From temple to palace, from Jerusalem to Rome, they fought him sometimes with intrigue, sometimes with the actual weapons of war. More than once the holy cloisters on Moriah resounded with the cries of fighting men. Finally, they drove him into exile. Meantime, throughout this struggle, the Allies had their diverse objects in view. The nobles hated Joazar, the high priest. The separatists, on the other hand, were his zealous adherents. When Herod's settlement went down with Archelaus, Joazar shared the fall. Hannas, the son of Seth, was selected by the nobles to fill the great office. Thereupon the allies divided. The induction of the Sethian brought them face to face in fierce hostility. In the course of the struggle with the unfortunate ethnarch, the nobles had found it expedient to attach themselves to Rome. Discerning that when the existing settlement was broken up, some form of government must needs follow, they suggested the conversion of Judea into a province. The fact furnished the separatists an additional cause for attack, and, when Samaria was made part of the province, the nobles sank into a minority, with nothing to support them but the imperial court and the prestige of their rank and wealth. Yet for fifteen years— down, indeed, to the coming of Valerius Gratis, they managed to maintain themselves in both palace and temple. Hannas, the idol of his party, had used his power faithfully in the interest of his imperial patron. A Roman garrison held the tower of Antonia. A Roman guard kept the gates of the palace. A Roman judge dispensed justice civil and criminal. A Roman system of taxation— 
mercilessly executed, crushed both city and country. Daily, hourly, and in a thousand ways the people were bruised and galled, and taught the difference between a life of independence and a life of subjugation. Yet Hannes kept them in comparative quiet. Rome had no truer friend, and he made his loss instantly felt. Delivering his vestments to Ishmael, the new appointee, he walked from the courts of the temple into the councils of the separatists, and became the head of a new combination, Bethusian and Sethian. Gratis, the procurator, left thus without a party, saw the fires which, in the fifteen years, had sunk into sodden smoke, begin to glow with returning life. A month after Ishmael took the office, the Roman found it necessary to visit him in Jerusalem. When from the walls, hooting and hissing him, the Jews beheld his guard enter the north gate of the city and march to the Tower of Antonia, they understood the real purpose of the visit. A full cohort of legionaries was added to the former garrison, and the keys of their yoke could now be tightened with impunity. If the procurator deemed it important to make an example, alas for the first offender! End of chapter.